It's uh, good to be with you this morning as we continue our study in the book of Mark. And as you remember, we've walked through Mark and we've looked at the life of Jesus in a couple of different ways. The first eight chapters, Mark gives us a good picture of who Jesus is. And in the second half, we see responses to interactions with Jesus and find ourselves asking the question, if I were the person in the story, how would I respond? Well, Pastor Chad will be back in worship with us next week, and I'm grateful this morning to have the opportunity to share God's word with you. But before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit so that as the scripture is read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you want to say to us today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, growing up as a kid, I was a bit of a sports nut. um, And it was common when I got together with my friends that we would debate these mega questions or the greatest questions. Who was the greatest of all time? Who was the goat? Who was the greatest baseball pitcher of all time? Was it Sandy Koufax or Nolan Ryan? Or how about football, the best quarterback, Tom Brady, Roger Staubach, Joe Montana, the list could go on and on. And of course, my favorite was basketball. And I'm still personally a Michael Jordan guy over Kobe or LeBron, but the fondness in my heart after growing up was watching the San Antonio Spurs and the big fundamental Tim Duncan. And there are others, it seems like If you can measure something, you can compare it. What is the highest grossing movie of all time, Avatar or Titanic? Who is the biggest social media influence of all time, Ronaldo or Kylie Jenner? And I'll be honest with you, I had to look those people up because I did not know. (laughs) I think you get the picture, right? You see this interest in mega questions is nothing new. They even go back to the time of Jesus when a religious leader asked him, which was the greatest, the most important of all the commandments? And interestingly, Jesus did not give him one commandment, but he gave him two. Matthew 22 records it this way. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And both commandments are grounded in our responsibility to love. First, we are to love God supremely. And second, we are to love others greatly. We're about to discover that our response to these two commandments exposes our hearts, reveals our souls, and uncovers what matters most to us. This is a familiar story that many of us have heard before. And as we look at it this morning, let's try to listen to the story with fresh ears and open hearts. Please listen now to the reading of God's word. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it had been a busy day for Jesus. The previous encounters Jesus has had with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they tried to trap him, but they couldn't. You see, Jesus had silenced them. No one dared to put forth any further questions. And now a scribe comes to Jesus with a question, but he's not trying to trap Jesus like the others. Instead, what the scribe had heard, how the scribe had heard Jesus respond made him want to ask another question. And he comes to Jesus with a question of his own. What commandment is the most important of all? And this was actually a common question among the scribes because the scribes were experts in interpretation of the scriptures. They were the ones skilled in Jewish law and it was their teaching that provided the framework for the Pharisee's system of workspace righteousness. The question he asked was not about chronology or preference. It had to do more with centrality. Which commandment is at the heart of the law? Which commandment makes keeping all the other laws both possible and meaningful? Well, from the outside looking in, it seems to me that Simplicity was important. As Beth mentioned, there were 613 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. 365 of them were negative and 248 of them were positive. And the scribes classified these commandments into categories based on their appointments, on their importance. Some commandments were considered heavier and had more serious repercussions for disobedience while other commandments were considered lighter and less demandment. Some commentators made mention that the scribes would pick and choose which commandments to obey and which ones they would let slide. The burden of religious regula regulation had grown to the point where even an expert in Moses' law struggled to understand its core. And let's be honest, for us today, does anybody really understand our tax code? It was kind of like that, right? The law of the Torah had become extremely hard to follow. But here, this scribe is wanting to hear what Jesus thinks is the weightiest of the commandments. He essentially wants Jesus to summarize the Torah, probably with some curiosity to see how Jesus does in his interpretation. And Jesus sums up the law of God with two specific commands. Love God and love people. This formal response to the scribe comes from Deuteronomy 6, 
which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. What Jesus is quoting is called the Shema, which in Hebrew means to hear. The Shema was recited by every devout Jew every morning and evening, and it would be like us reciting the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed today. But Jesus isn't just quoting a popular confession in Judaism. Jesus is summarizing the law of God, taking all 613 commandments and boiling them down. And what Jesus does by boiling them down is to help the scribe and us see more clearly a complete picture of the character and nature of God. We must not lose sight of the most important truth about God, that God is infinite love. John perfectly summarized the divine character and nature when he wrote this, that God is love. When he showed his glory to Moses, God revealed himself as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Love is the foundation of the character of God. It is the basis of everything that God has revealed to humankind in the scriptures. Paul called love the greatest Christian attribute. It is the first characteristic in the fruit of the spirit. Time and time again, the scriptures reveal that God perfectly personifies love. Behold our God, there is none other like him. This is who God is. And Jesus is affirming that we must love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. A total response of God is required. If we say we love God and we really mean it, then we must love God supremely. We must love God with all that we are, all of our being, all of our hearts. Loving God is to be our top priority. Now, if I said to my wife, Esther, I love you with all my mind, but I don't love you with my heart, you know, outside of me not in getting dinner for about a week, what do, you think, what do you think that would really mean? Could I really say that I love my wife with everything that I am? Of course not. In the same way, if we do not love God with every fiber of our being, then my friends, we must ask ourselves the question, is he really our God? Is he the all-consuming passion in my life? Do I enjoy spending time with him? Is he at the center of everything I do? It seems virtually impossible, doesn't it, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's so many things that distract us from our relationship with him. I had a chance to attend the Eco National Gathering in January and was really impressed with a number of the keynote speakers there. And there was one guy who especially resonated with me and whose name, was, uh, whose name is John Mark Comer. He was a pastor in an urban church in Portland, Oregon, and now spends his time writing and working in a nonprofit. And he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in the book, he was making the case that we're all so busy, we're all so distracted, 
to social media and television, the fast and frantic pace of life will keep us so busy that we cannot find the time to love God with all our hearts and our minds and our soul and our strength. When we give our attention and focus on earthly things, our relationships with God and with others wane. We become so busy that we crowd God out. Komar says it this way, what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. I think many of us can resonate with that, can't we? When we get too busy to not have our quiet time, to read our Bibles or to come to church or Sunday school, it's hard to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. And I confess to you this morning that it's a constant battle for me to keep things from insidiously slipping into my life, becoming number one and crowding God out. Meetings, family, things that seem urgent on the surface but are not really that important in the grand scheme of things creep in and throw me off. But our relationship with God is strengthened each and every day that we put him first. God already took the initiative to put us first, to give us his best when he made the supreme sacrifice on our behalf by sending his son to die for me and to die for you. And if that's not love, what is it? Our response to God should not be so that he would love us more or that we would have more grace or more blessings or favor or sustained health or a big portfolio. You see, we can never get God to love us any more than he already does because God is the essence of love. That is his being. That is his character. That is his nature. We love because he first loved us. And you can take it to the bank that we have all of God. The most treasured gift we can give to God is the one that he can never force us to give. Our love, our devotion, and our heart to him. One theologian writes it this way. God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. We're not only called to love God supremely, but we're also called to love others greatly. Notice the second part of our text. Jesus doesn't give the scribe one commandment, but he gives him two. Jesus quotes from, from another Old Testament passage in Leviticus 19 when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus to place these two commandments, loving God and loving neighbor on the same level would have been revolutionary to the Jews in Jesus's days. It would have made sense for Jesus to stop at the commandments to love God with all our being. But then Jesus takes a step further by including loving our neighbor. There's no way that any Jew would have placed these two commandments on the same level. Jesus is showing us that the two commandments are inseparable. 
and how we respond to loving God supremely with our vertical relationship with him will determine how we respond to loving others greatly through our horizontal relationships with others. You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. Another way to put it is our love for people reveals the degree of our love for God. First John says it this way, if someone says I love God and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we love God supremely, then loving our neighbor will naturally follow. And Jesus isn't just using neighbor here in a restrictive sense. It was a common misunderstanding for Jews to take neighbor to meaning just fellow Jews. But Jesus isn't referring to our neighbor as those that we think look like us and think like us. Instead, our neighbor, according to Jesus, is all of humanity. Those that don't look like us or those that don't think like us. Even those that are our enemies. Jesus is saying that we must love others greatly. I think one of the best examples of loving others is in Luke's story of the Good Samaritan. In this story, there was only one who showed himself to be a true neighbor to the man in need, and it was the Samaritan. There were two others, a priest and a Levite, people that should have helped the man in need, but they refused to do so. The Samaritan is the one that loved greatly when he gave his time and resources with no regard for himself. Well, I I had a chance uh, maybe last week or so to go with a group of friends from the church to see the movie, The Jesus Revolution. And it was a story uh, set in the 60s. It's a true story about a youth pastor named Greg Laurie, an older guy pastoring a dying church named Chuck Smith, and a unique character named Lonnie Frisbee, who was a hippie and loved Jesus. And the movie had a lot of different twists and plots, but I was struck by the relationship between the old pastor and the young Jesus follower. It was like they were from two different worlds and they were colliding. They had nothing in common in terms of personality, life experience, background, appearance, but somehow they eventually managed to make it work. The old pastor's love of young people and the young hippie's love of Jesus enable them to get over their hangups and their differences. Chuck Smith eventually saw Lonnie Frisbee as God saw Lonnie Frisbee. And this change in his heart freed him to love him as a neighbor and not to focus on their glaring differences, but their similarities, their love of God and their love of people. You see, we were all created in the image of God, even people that don't look like us or talk or dress like us. We're all created in God's image and called to love one another. Ephesians says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This means that there is no end of love for my neighbor. I can't come to the end of the day and say, you know, I've hit my love in my neighbor quota for the day. I'm done. I'm out. There's no more. No, there's no love Uh, There's no end of love for my neighbor because there's no end of God's love for me. The fact 
that Jesus died for me means that I must die for my neighbor. This is what it means to love our neighbors more than ourselves. Now, I hear what you're thinking. It's really hard to love some people, isn't it? I hear you when you're saying, Roland, you don't know my brother-in-law, John, or my Aunt Mary, and you can't really believe the grocery clerk at HEB in lane one, or maybe the payables person that's on the second floor. You can't believe what they said to me. And yes, you're right. There's some family members and coworkers and neighbors that have not treated us well. They have not said or done things that we've liked and they've done and said some hateful things and it hurts and it's human nature to not like them or even love them. But the apostle Paul tells us that as followers of Jesus, as the disciples of, as disciples of Jesus, we are to love differently, to love others as God loves, to constantly remind ourselves that when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, to think about how scripture defines love. A love that's patient, that's kind, a love that does not envy, that's not boastful, a love that's not proud or rude or self-seeking or easily angered, a love that keeps no record of wrongs. That's how scripture defines love. Well, so what? I think um, we'd heard over the last couple of weeks that there is no real forgiveness without sacrifice I'd like to offer to you this morning that there is no real love without sacrifice. Stop and think about God's love for us, his essence, his being, who he is and his character and nature. Think about the love God for us has for us when he sacrificed his one and only son, that this sacrificed son would be beaten with a rod flogged with a whip made of spike tips and hooks. A son that would get a steel wire crown slammed down onto his head. A God who sacrificed his son that he could be laughed at and mocked, that he would be spat upon, that he he would have his body beaten with fists, that he would have nails jammed into his hands and feet so that his son could be hung up on a cross to have a spear pierce his side and so that he would ultimately die for you and me. Friends, that's love. That's sacrificial love. Tim Keller says it this way. Jesus didn't have to die despite of God's love. He had to die because of God's love. It had to be this way because all life-changing love is substitutional sacrifice. And yes, loving God and loving people is hard. And it's easy for us to be selfish in our needs and lose sight of our first love. But we must remember that God's grace is only a whisper away. All he wants for us to do is to turn to him, to humbly confess when we've fallen short and wholeheartedly embrace Jesus Christ as king. He's ready and willing to forgive us and welcome us with open arms. Let's turn to him and do the things we need to do so that we are not distracted or hurried or lose focus. The key to an abundant life, the key to love and guide is God is a passionate, passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ. The key is to understand that we have a heavenly father 
that loves us unconditionally, a God that loves us and tugs at us and nudges us back to him. He's the God that shows us his love and mercy so that we can show that same love and mercy to others. He's a God that so desperately wants us to be in relationship with him, but relationship takes time and effort on our part. My friends, my prayer for us this morning is that we at First Pres be a people that love God supremely and love people greatly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot comprehend your love for us. We thank you that you are a loving God and a gracious God. That your love is perfect. That it never fails and that there is nothing that we can ever do to separate us from you. We thank you for sending your son Jesus and for your sacrificial love. In Christ's name we pray.